0: All right. So, Dr. Mazza, it's wonderful to have you back. We had you last month and we just had unbelievable uh, reviews of of your presentation. I personally watched it four times, I think four (laughs) to five times over, and I've picked up something new every time I watch it. Um, It's very in-depth and very detailed, uh, but not over our heads or over my head where I couldn't understand it. So I really appreciate the way that you go through everything methodically and, and slowly enough for, you know, because I know you're at a different level. God's bless you with g- this gift. And, you know, but for us to be able to understand and grasp it, I think that is, that is, that's huge. And I think people are attracted to that. I know I am, uh, that I can listen and, and learn, um, uh, from exactly. somebody that has the right mindset about this whole issue. He's not out for his own personal benefit. He's out to, he loves the church and he wants to he wants the truth to be known right like you said you made this your mission when father gruner said in 2014 that something was wrong and then father gruner left to go to heaven to intercede for us thank god and now amen. you picked up this ball and you've run with it the way father gruner would have if, if he was still with us so amen i want to thank you for that so well let's thank say you, a quick George. hail mary and then let's let dr Mazza begin and then we'll have questions towards the end anybody would like to talk about pertinent issues, issues about Fatima, or what we talked about last week, or just anything in general. So let's say a Hail Mary right quick. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy thine Jesus. Holy, Holy Mary, Mary, Mother of,
1: Mother God, of God, pray, pray for, for us sinners, sinners, now and at now the hour. hour of our death. Amen. amen.
0: And may God bless Dr. Mazin and his wife with their health issues. May Mary protect them and keep them safe. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We're all yours. Okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for that uh, very warm uh, introduction. And uh, thanks for having me back. Uh, I appreciate it. And um, well, uh, you know, it's all about the truth and getting to the bottom of things. Uh, I thought I might start out by using an analogy. Um, Let's imagine a a body found in a room which was locked from the inside. Now, why engage in such a a morbid thought experiment? Well, because sometimes uh, secular scenarios can help us to decipher sacred mysteries. Um, In 2010, uh, British television had the return of the uh, most famous private detective Sherlock Holmes, and in one of the premier episodes of uh, Sherlock, the police they find a gunshot victim holding a gun inside of a locked room, and they naturally assume, therefore, that it is suicide. But Sherlock uh, protests. he says, "Wrong, that's one possible." Explanation of some of the facts. You've got a solution that you like, but you're choosing to ignore anything you see that doesn't comply with it. Well, it's the same way with those who insist that Pope Benedict resigned validly. They have a surface level solution that they like, and they're choosing to ignore anything that can be seen that doesn't comply with it. For example, back six months ago, I had a debate with a uh, blogger, uh, Stephen O'Reilly, and on his uh, website, he states categorically, quote, there is no reason or evidence that should lead one to reject the validity of Pope Benedict's resignation. No reason, no evidence, That should lead one to reject the validity of Pope Benedict's resignation. And if I'm not mistaken, Mr. O'Reilly is is coming out with a book this month or next month called uh, Valid, where he uh, tries to uphold the validity of Benedict's resignation. But let's return to our uh, corpse case. Um, This is what Sherlock explains to the police. That the wound was on the right side of the victim's head. Um, so the victim was left-handed. Now, how does a left-handed man shoot himself in the right side of his head? Okay, that would require a bit of contortion. And then the, the police say, well, how do you know he was left-handed? And Sherlock points out, well, on the, on the coffee table, On the left side, the coffee mug handle is uh, pointed to the left. Um, There's a pen and paper on the left-hand side of the phone because he picked it up with his right and he took down uh, messages with his left. Um, And Sherlock says it's highly unlikely that a left-handed man would shoot himself on the right side of the head. Therefore, the only conclusion you can come to is... Someone broke in here and murdered him. Now, that's the only explanation of all of the facts. Well, in the case of Pope Benedict's 2013 renunciation and his uh, transformation into Pope Emeritus, a conclusion that explains all of the facts must answer all of these questions. Why did Benedict XVI choose to become Pope Emeritus instead of returning to Cardinal Ratzinger, especially when there is currently no such office in canon law as Pope Emeritus, nor in the church's 2,000-year history? Furthermore, why does Benedict still issue apostolic blessings in his own name when only a pope can do that? I believe that you uh, included that in the uh, advertisement for for tonight's lecture, and we we're going to talk about that. Why is Benedict's proper form of address still? His holiness, when only a pope can be called that. And why did he choose to continue wearing papal white? Could it be truly for his stated reason? Uh, There were no black cassocks available in Rome when I resigned. (laughs) Rome, for those of you who don't know this, is a, a mecca for clerical clothing. All right. It, it's it's the one place on Earth where you can always find black cassocks. Um, well. Like Sherlock Holmes, it's time to dig deeper. And come up with an explanation of all of the facts. And so that. As you pointed out in your introduction, that's what I have made it my business to try and do, sifting through the evidence and talking to people uh, and praying. And I, I think I've got I think I've got it figured out what Benedict was doing. And so we will we can we can talk about that, but maybe the simplest way of of putting it is to look at his interview which he did in 2016 with Peter Seewald, a fellow uh, German, um, someone who interviewed Benedict back in the 1990s, so he, he knows him for a long time. And um, in his book, let me see if I have it here. No, um, the name of the book that Peter Seewald did where he interviews Pope Benedict is called Benedict, uh, in his own words, Last Testament. And again, it was published in, in 2016. And Seewald puts a question to Benedict. He basically repeats his own declaratio back to him, right? On February 11th, 2013, Pope Benedict, at a... Uh, a meeting of the, uh, cardinals, I believe it was to make new saints. Um, he re- basically uh, shocked everybody with his announcement that he was resigning. And, um, so it's called a declaratio and, um, basically Seawald in his book just repeats, uh, Ratzinger's own words back to him. He, he says to Ratzinger is a slowdown in the ability to perform reason enough to climb down from the chair of Peter. Because that, that's what Benedict said in his declaratio. He said, I, I realize I don't have the strength uh, for the words and the deeds. Uh, and um, he can still do the prayer and suffering. Because the, the munus of the papacy, the office of the papacy is essentially spiritual. Anyway, so when Peter Sewold says to him, is a slowdown in the ability to perform, is that reason enough to climb down from the chair of Peter? Well, Ratzinger should say, yes, <laughs> but he doesn't. He says, quote,
2: one can make that accusation. Accusation. How, how is that an accusation? um he says it it's it's a functional misunderstanding
1: well what's that supposed to mean what's what's a functional misunderstanding and then he says something that is the smoking gun here he says the follower of peter meaning
2: the pope is not merely bound to a function. Well, what's that supposed to mean? Well, as I, can, as I can prove to you, when he says that the
1: follower of Peter is not merely bound to a function, he means the Bishop of Rome actively administering the Diocese of Rome and, and the Universal Church.
2: He says, the office, and the Latin word for that is is either munis or officium,
1: enters into your very being. So Ratzinger here is, is talking about another dimension of reality. And finally, he says, fulfilling
2: a function is not the only criterion. And how do we translate that?
1: Uh, Carrying out the active ministry of Bishop of Rome and uh, Pope of the Universal Church uh, is not the only criterion for being a successor
2: of St. Peter, for being a Pope. Well, if... Being the
1: Bishop of Rome is not the only criterion for being a Pope. Then if Benedict renounces being the the Bishop of Rome to become the Pope Emeritus, it means he can still be Pope. Because being Bishop of Rome is not the only criterion. He said the follower of Peter is not merely bound
2: to being bishop of Rome. Now, I don't know about you guys, but whoever heard of this
1: in the 2000 year history of the church, whoever heard of, of looking at the papacy this way, that you could have one
2: active pope and you could have one, a pope without being bishop of Rome um
1: and anyway this is what so this is the explanation of all of the facts why he still gives apostolic blessings in his own name why his title is still your holiness his holiness why he still wears white and and lives in the vatican um And, of course, I could uh, maybe at some point in in our our talk, I will bring up some quotes from Archbishop uh, Georg Ganswine, uh, where he basically reaffirms everything that that Benedict has just said here. Um, So when Seewald repeats the words of Benedict's own declaratio back to him, and, and Benedict calls it an accusation, Uh, a functional misunderstanding. Yes, anyone, Seawold included, who reads Benedict's Declaratio and concludes at face value that by giving up the active duties of a pope, Benedict ceased being papal has not only misunderstood Benedict's intentions, but the Petrine ministry itself. Uh, Again, uh, I'll quote again from Benedict. He says,
2: um, Of course, a father does not stop being a father. And how should we translate that? A pope does
1: not stop being a pope, but he is relieved of concrete responsibility the day-to-day you know, running of the church. So Benedict says, he remains a father in a deep inward sense, in a particular relationship which has responsibility, but not with day-to-day tasks as
2: such. And he finishes by saying, if he steps down, He
1: remains in an inner sense within the responsibility that he took on, but not in the function. And then ultimately, he says one comes to understand that the office of the Pope has lost
2: none of its greatness. Well, um, so if if you want to try to understand this a little further, I'll, I'll
1: add this. Benedict made a similar remark uh, regarding the, uh, the Catholic priesthood after Vatican II. He says that um, there was a crisis. He says, quote, the crisis of the priesthood, which became obvious shortly after the council, It resulted from a change in the meaning of life. The sacred was less understood while the functional was elevated to become the exclusively dominant category. Two conceptions of the priesthood were in confrontation. A social functional vision which define the nature of the priesthood as a service to the community in the fulfillment of a function at the service of the social body of the church. That was one uh, conception of being a Catholic priest. But then there's another conception to it.
2: He says the ontological, that means uh, metaphysical,
1: beyond the five senses, beyond what we can taste, touch, see, hear, and smell. The ontological, sacramental vision of the priesthood, which, while not denying the uh, service character of the priesthood, saw the priesthood as anchored in the existence of Uh, of a ministry determined by a gift called a sacrament and granted to him by the Lord through the church. A shift of terminology accompanied the functional vision. One avoided using the words priest or priestly on account of the sacral meaning. And in its place, one used the neutral functional term minister. Which it, so I don't have to read any more from uh, what Benedict said just there. Uh, I think hopefully uh, this is becoming clearer where uh, Benedict is coming from, and why he basically uh, still claims, in some sense, to be Pope or papal even if he's no longer actively running the church.
2: Now, I said that I could give you some statements from uh, Archbishop
1: Georg Ganswine, who gave a speech at the Gregorian, Pontifical Gregorian University in May of 2016. And this is what, uh, and of course, most people will know that Archbishop Georg Ganswein is uh, uh, Ratzinger's you know, bosom companion. Uh, he, he's, he's his caretaker. He takes care of him, uh, and he's been his sidekick for decades. Um, this is what Ganswine had to say about Benedict's declaratio when he resigned bishop of Rome. He says the key word in that statement is munis petrinum, translated as happens most of the time with petrine ministry. And then he says, because he's about to make a distinction between service ministry and the ontological sacramental dimension, like like Benedict just did in the quote I gave you where he was talking about the priesthood. Ganswine says, and yet munis in Latin has a multiplicity of meanings. It can mean service, duty, guide, gift, even prodigy. And then he says something, and we have to listen to this very carefully. Before, And after his resignation, Benedict understood and understands, present tense, his task as a participation in such a uh, Petrine ministry. In other words, his Petrine munis that he got in April 19th, 2005. Not his Episcopal munis, which he got in uh, June of 1977 or May of 1977. Um, Ganswine says he has left the papal throne. And yet with the step he made on February 11th, 2013, he has not at all abandoned this ministry. Instead, he has complemented the personal office with a collegial, synodal dimension as a quasi-shared ministry. And then Ganswine makes another uh, mic drop line here. He says,
2: he has not abandoned the office of Peter. Something which would have been entirely
1: impossible for him after his irrevocable acceptance of the office
2: in April 2005. By an act of extraordinary courage, he has instead renewed the office. He has not abandoned the office. He has renewed the office. And then Ganswine says, to date, there has never been a step
1: like that taken by Benedict XVI. So it is not surprising that it has been seen by some as revolutionary or to the contrary, as entirely consistent with The gospel. Well, Ganswine's statement, he has not abandoned the office of Peter, is a very troubling statement. Because according to canon law, canon 332.2, it says, quote, if it happens that the Roman pontiff resigns his office. Did you get that? If it happens that the Roman pontiff resigns his office, it is required for validity that the resignation is made freely and that it be properly manifested. Therefore, to validly resign, a pope must abandon the office
2: of Peter. And yet we have Ganswine here saying that he has not abandoned the office of Peter. And we have Benedict
1: saying that um, the office enters
2: into your very being. Meaning he hasn't given, given it up. So you might look at, you might look at this, this way, just like,
1: um, uh, after Vatican II, uh, they started changing the mass and doing things with the mass that were inconceivable prior to that. Now they're doing things with the papacy, which is, is likewise inconceivable. Um, and I, to, to corroborate, because I've, as you guys know, I've come, come under a lot of fire for uh, trying to say that uh, Benedict in some sense thinks that he's still the Pope and therefore he committed a substantial error and therefore he's actually still Bishop of Rome, if I'm right, if, if, if he committed a substantial error. Um, but I actually, uh, so there's, there's two parts to this. The first part is what did, What does Benedict think that he did? What does Benedict think that he accomplished? And I've just shared that with you. And then the second part of it is, well, regardless of what Benedict thinks, does that square with 2,000 years of Catholic history? And does that square with canon law? And if it doesn't, then he can think that he's a ham sandwich. It doesn't matter. Uh, What matters is, uh, what has the church taught about the papacy for two thousand years? and what does canon law currently say about uh, resigning? and And the answer is, looks like that he committed a substantial error and his will was not free. Canon 188 of the uh, current code of canon law says that um, a, a resignation that is made out of grave fear uh, or out of substantial error is invalid by the law itself. Um, so we, we, we have a situation here uh, that, look, I'm just, I'm just calling it the way I see it here. And if I'm wrong about this, then I would like somebody to please point it out to me. But uh, I don't think I'm wrong about what uh, Benedict is saying about himself, what he thinks he did. And I don't think I'm wrong about the conclusion that we would have to come to uh, re- regarding this, this newfangled uh, approach uh, to, to the papacy. And there's another quote I would like to share with you all. Um, and it's actually not from Benedict, but it's from uh, Pope Francis, Jorge Bergoglio, regarding um, the nature of the papacy. Let's see if I can can find it here. Excuse me a moment while I search this document. But and then I'm um, and then after I share this quote with you, uh, I'm going to tell you something that uh, is happening this weekend that we need to, to talk about. Here's the quote. This is from Pope Francis from 20, let's see what year was this? This is pretty early, 2013, I think. In February, 20, uh, no, February 2015, I think. This is the exact quote from Bergoglio. Some Theologians.
2: For for some theologians, the papacy is a sacrament. The Germans are very creative in all these things.
1: Now, who are these German theologians who think the papacy is a sacrament? Well, uh, Ratzinger, uh, Karl Rahner, and and we don't have time right now to get into all of this but um so even even pope francis is confirming that dr maza is correct in in my understanding of benedict that benedict thinks or, and, uh, I, again i don't have to read his mind he said it the successor of peter the
2: follower of peter the pope is not merely bound to a function that is being the Bishop of Rome. Well,
1: if there's something else that you're bound to when you become a Pope, besides being Bishop of Rome, he thinks he's still bound to it. In other words, he all he wanted to give up was Bishop of Rome. He didn't want to give up whatever else it is that makes you Pope. Um, and again, I'm not the only one to come up with this. There is a, uh, an Italian professor by the name of Carlo Fantapie, F-A-N-T-A-P-P-I-E. And this is what he says.
2: Um, I'm translating from the Italian. In my opinion, um, the interpretive question raised by Benedict
1: XVI's announcement, his declaratio, is to be traced uh, to the problem of the relationship between the sacramental and the ministerial or functional Dimensions. One would refer to the ontological structure, the other to historical impl- Im- implementation. In this case,
2: the Munis petronym, although not a grade of order,
1: would refer to a permanent mission of a sacramental nature which would not cease with the loss of the office ministry. Let me break that down for you. Fant- Fantapier is saying that Dr. Maz is right with this, okay? That um, uh, Benedict sees the Petrine munus, the munus of St. Peter, the office of St. Peter, he sees it as a as sacramental, uh, as a sacrament. He he doesn't see it as an as an eighth grade of order. You know, the Council of Trent, I believe, defined that we have seven sacraments. Okay, so it's not a sacrament in terms of a, you know a new eighth sacrament. Uh, but in some way. Becoming Pope has a sacramental nature so that you can resign the office, but you can't resign being Pope because it leaves an indelible mark on your soul. Let me give an example. At Vatican II, I I may have talked about this last time. I'm not sure if I did, but um, at Vatican II, they stated something that was never really stated before they said that being a bishop of the catholic church is a sacrament again it's not an eighth sacrament it's not a new sacrament it's the fullness of ordination of holy orders okay so You might look at what Benedict is saying here as saying that becoming Pope is the fullness, 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 fullness of holy orders, of the sacrament of ordination.
2: Um, Or let me quote uh, Fantapier again. Starting
1: from the principle of the divine elevation of the Pope. From the absolutist conception of his power and from the special sacramental bond that the elect contracts at the moment of his election succeeds in affirming the ontological character of the bond between the person and the office ending up by considering the resignation of the pontificate theologically impossible. And that is why Benedict calls himself Pope Emeritus. Why he gives his apostolic blessings as if he was still Pope. Why he is still called your holiness. Why he still wears white? Why he lives in the Vatican?
2: Um, so, um, the second
1: part of what I wanted to say tonight is I wanted to give you guys a uh, a briefing on the the implications of this because some stuff is going to be happening this very weekend, and I and
2: all hell may, may break loose next week as a result. Maybe, maybe quite literally. So there, there's two possibilities
1: as I see it. If Fantapier is correct, if Jorge Bergoglio is correct, if Dr. Mazza is correct, if, uh, Ian Barnhart and Mar- Mark Doherty and other people are correct, and Benedict um, thinks that the papacy is sacramental, so that you can never stop being pope ontologically. You um, well then there's there's two ways of interpreting that. He thought he could have his cake and eat it too.
2: He thought he could resign being bishop of Rome and pastor of the universal church, give that to somebody else, but still be Pope. Now, I don't think that's metaphysically possible because
1: nobody in 2000 years of church history has ever claimed that's possible. Therefore, I argue, according to Canon 188 of the church's own law, he committed a substantial error. And very, very briefly, substantial error is when your will chooses to do something, because your intellect provided you with erroneous
2: information. And I think that's what happened. Therefore, his uh, resignation would be invalid.
1: Therefore he'd still be Pope. therefore the election of. Uh, Jorge Bergoglio would be invalid, and it would explain an awful lot of the shenanigans that have been going on for nine and a half years now. Um, But there's also another way of looking at this. If, uh, well, again, so if Benedict thinks that becoming Pope uh, uh, gives you a permanent sacramental mission, That doesn't stop
2: with the loss of uh, Bishop of Rome. um, if he's right
1: that the, the papacy is a sacrament, then you could argue you don't, you can't resign being bishop of Rome. That being bishop of Rome and being vicar of Christ. Are interconnected, Um, and so if you want to go ahead and claim that the uh, papacy is the highest, the or the fullness of the uh, sacrament of holy orders, you can't bifurcate that. All right, it means that you can you can't
2: resign. Because it's like a sacrament. It's like being married, right? Um, Now, uh, so under that scenario, uh,
1: he would still be Pope because that's just the nature of the game. You know, it's like until death do you part, right? Now, why do I bring this up? Because this weekend... On the 27th, Saturday, the 27th, there's going to be a consistory in Rome. All of the cardinals are going to get together. Now, the, the cardinals are Roman, even though they come from all over the world. Uh, every cardinal has a church physically in Rome that he is the, like, kind of like the godfather of Even though he doesn't run that church on a day to day basis. If I'm giving a course this fall on the history of the papacy, if uh, folks go to edmundmaza.com, you can sign up for our uh, Pope history course. I will be explaining all these different facets of the papacy. And God willing, I'm also coming out this fall uh, with a book. Uh, called The Pope and the Prayer of Christ, uh, Ratzinger's Resignation and the Rise of, ant, of um, Antichurch. I think that's what I called it. And, and the Rise of the Ro- Rome of Antichurch. Anyway, um, so they're going to have what's called a consistory. And Francis has not had a consistory of cardinals in something like seven years, And the reason why they're getting together is they're going to make new cardinals. And this is going to affect the next papal election, the next conclave, because he's adding people who are going to be eligible to vote for the next pope. Now, um, so he's doing that on Saturday, the 27th. And then the next day, the 28th, He's going to leave the consistory, which is odd that he would only have it for one day and then split town. And he's going to go to a place in Italy called L'Aquila. It's in the Apennine Mountains. And he's going to visit the shrine of St. Celestine, who is St. Celestine. He is a pope, Celestine V, who lived uh, Almost exactly 700 years ago. And uh, and I'll briefly go through this with you. It was Celestine who was the first Pope in history to just voluntarily give up being Pope. There was, you know, no outside pressure on him. there was no crisis in the church. He just felt it was too much for him. Um, I believe Celestine was like 81 years old at the time. So uh, he was a very holy man. But if we take that out of the equation, uh, he might be in the same category with Joe Biden. I mean, I think Biden is like 80 or 81 now. And he he doesn't, uh, you know, Not to get political here, but I he doesn't have a clue about how to run the country, how to be a president. Okay, he's out of his depth. Uh, So in that respect, it was very similar with uh, Celestine. I don't know if Celestine had dementia or Alzheimer's, but he he just well, I'll tell you the story, and then I'll I'll go through the history of the of uh, little history of papal resignations with you. So Celestine was chosen by the cardinals because he was, had a reputation for being a saintly monk. Um, he, he wasn't even a bishop or a cardinal. And you see, the cardinals were deadlocked. They couldn't agree on who should be the next pope. And so somebody said, well, why don't we, why don't we get that, you know, get old Obi-Wan Kenobi, old Ben Kenobi, uh, and, and he's a Jedi, let, let, let's make him pope. Uh, and so they, they, they sought out this monk who had a, a reputation for, for holiness, um, and they made, him, they made him Pope. Now, among theologians, there's a debate about what makes you a Pope, and what do I mean by that? Uh, it's God who makes you Pope, not the College of Cardinals. The, the election is just a mechanism But when a man accepts what the cardinals are offering him, if he says yes, then God gives him the papacy. It's God who gives him the papacy, not the cardinals. But there's a debate whether or not God gives him the papacy at that moment when he accepts the election or when he's consecrated a bishop. Because in the case of Celestine, He uh, he wasn't he wasn't a bishop. And so I believe he was elected in June of 1294. June of 1294. And he wasn't uh, consecrated a bishop. Until August 28th. 1294. So this Sunday is the anniversary. Of his consecration as a bishop. Um, So whether he started becoming pope in June or whether he started becoming a pope on August 28th, whatever, he resigned in December. So He was literally only the pope for September, October, November, and part of December. And uh, at at the time, uh, not everybody agreed that a pope can do this. Because nobody had ever voluntarily given up, given up the papacy before. So, uh, before I go into a little history on this, I bring this up because, so on Saturday, they're going to have this consistory. On Sunday, uh, the Pope is, is going to visit, uh, I mean, Pope Francis is going to visit uh, uh, Celestine V. And some people are speculating. There's all kinds of rumors swirling right now. If you go to Inside the Vatican Magazine, if you go to LifeSite News, even if you go to secular uh, news sources, there's all kinds of rumors. One rumor is that uh, just like Pope Benedict went to visit the shrine of St. Celestine and then resigned shortly afterwards, uh, they think that uh, Bergoglio is going to go to visit Celestine and then he might resign immediately. Or uh, at the consistory the day before, he might announce that he now is appointing a coadjutor to help him run the Diocese of Rome or perhaps the Universal Church. Um, you know, many of you are probably familiar with the fact that in, in major dioceses, archdioceses, you've got a bishop and sometimes you've got uh, auxiliary bishops that help the bishop to run the diocese. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, so th- there, there's all kind of, in fact, there's one rumor that says that the good cardinals might finally, after nine and a half years, might finally speak up and, and say something to Francis's face about how he's running the church. That could happen this weekend, also. Uh, in fact, in fact, if it is true that he's going to announce his retirement, or if it's true that he is going to be semi retired. And have a, a coadjutor or auxiliary bishop helping him. It might be to um, sidestep whatever move the, the good cardinals are are planning. But of course, this is this is all speculation. I'm I'm just sharing rumor with you. I, I don't pretend that any of this is, is factual. But we'll we'll know uh, by Monday uh, what the story is. Well, um, let me use the time that we have before we go to questions to give you a quick overview of the history of papal resignations and why it's so strange what um, Celestine did and why it's so strange what Benedict did. because. There have been 265 uh, popes and only two out of the 265 have voluntarily just decided, you know, it's all too much. I can't do this anymore. 2000 years, 265 popes. And only two of them said, you know what? I, I just can't do this. Um, all right, so I'm going to run through well, quickly here uh, the history of papal resignations. Now, in the first thousand years, in the first thousand years, we don't actually have reliable evidence
2: that anybody retired for whatever reason. Okay? Um,
1: the first alleged case of a papal resignation is Pope St. Clement. Now, St. Irenaeus and, uh, says that uh, first there was Peter, and then there was Linus, and then there was Cletus, and then there was Clement. But one of the church fathers, another church father, Tertullian, said that, no, there was Peter, and then Peter consecrated Clement himself as his successor. So how do we get around this discrepancy? Was Clement the second pope, or was Clement the uh, Peter, Linus, Cletus, Clement? was he the fourth pope? Um, well. There's a Saint Epiphanius who agreed with Tertullian, but claimed that Clement, even though he was the successor of St. Peter, the first successor of St. Peter, resigned the papacy so that Linus, not Schroeder, not Charlie Brown, and definitely not Pigpen, so that Linus, uh, for the sake of peace in the church, uh, could become pope. And then, so first it was Peter, then it was Clement. And then according to St. Epiphanius, uh, Clement decided for the sake of peace in the church to let Linus become the Pope. So he resigned. And then when Linus died, uh, Cletus became Pope. And then when Cletus died, according to St. Epiphanius, uh, Clement came back again. He became Pope again. And that's why we've got two different... Uh, list lists of popes where on one list he's number two and on another list he's number four or whatever. Anyway. That that is just too convoluted. And and to have only one guy claiming this, anyway, it, it, it it's not sound history. All right, what's the next example we have of a possible resignation? During the persecution of the Emperor Maximus Thrax. Sounds like a heavy metal band. Uh, Maximus Thrax, in the year 235, he exiled Pope St. Pontian to the uh, mines of Sardinia, a very uh, dreadful, awful place. It's like being sentenced to Auschwitz uh, where he was a martyr. Uh, And we have an ancient source called the Liber Pontificalis, the Book of the Popes. It gives us a few bits of information about St. Pontian, but it doesn't say anything about him formally resigning. So people say that Pontian resigned so that somebody else could be pope, but um, we don't actually have that in the historical record. Another exiled pope was Pope St. Martin. And he was exiled, uh, of all places, to uh, a place called Karazhan in Crimea, which is where the Russians and Ukrainians are are fighting each other uh, as we speak. So if we want peace in that area of the world, we ought to pray to Pope St. Martin. Uh, He lived in the mid-7th century. He was exiled there by a a Roman emperor, but this time by a Christian Roman emperor, or I should say an heretical Christian Roman emperor by the name of Constance II.
2: Um, Again, there is no mention in the sources of any letter of resignation.
1: Although he did write a letter to a friend even though he was in exile, he smuggled out a letter and he says that he prays for the pastor that is now placed over the Romans. Um, that that's not evidence of a formal resignation. It's certainly not evidence of a voluntary uh, resignation. All right, let's finish out the first thousand years here. So during the reign of Pope John XII, and this was uh, in the year 963, a rival pope, an antipope, Leo Eighth, was installed by, again, a Christian emperor, this time Otto I of Germany. So Leo VIII, the antipope, was installed in December of 963. The real Pope, Pope John XII, was likely murdered. He died in early May of 964. So the Romans elected Pope Benedict V. But the emperor was not happy about that. So Benedict V was only Pope for a month, a month and a day from May 22nd, 964 to June 23rd, 964, because Otto came down from Germany. And uh, according to Otto's uh, court historian, Lutbrand of Cremona, uh, Benedict pled guilty to uh, usurping the papacy of Leo VIII and he quote unquote willingly resigned um, the office. And lastly, for the first, mil- uh, well, now that's the first, that's the first thousand years of church history, and nobody voluntarily retired. Okay. Now, the second thousand years, um, I'll quote a, a, pa- a papal historian. Professor from the Catholic University of America, Patrick Granfield. He says Pope Benedict IX and Gregory VI; these two popes can be taken together, since their careers are intertwined. Uh, so Benedict IX, who uh, who had obtained. The office of Pope by simony. What does that mean? Uh, Simony is a sin where you try to buy or sell something that is holy. Can't do that. Simon, the magician, tried to buy the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And uh, Peter, St. Peter, he basically read read him the riot act for that.
2: So Benedict IX became pope by simony. And so
1: he resigned the papacy on the condition
2: that uh, the future pope, Gregory VI, would grant him a comfortable pension. So after Benedict left the scene, Gregory the, the Sixth was himself deposed uh, by a council that was called by the emperor, again, the German uh, emperor, for the same reason uh, about simony. And later, Benedict was also deposed.
1: So what does Granfield conclude? Thus, in neither case do we have an instance of a pure resignation because of the involvement of Simony and because of the uh, uh, Holy Roman German Emperor calling the shots. All right. Um, And this brings us now uh, to something that I discovered. This is going to be in my... Upcoming book. This is going to be in in, uh, in our our Pope history course, probably either in the spring of next year or fall 2023. Um, I discovered something about one of the most famous popes of the Middle Ages, and that is Pope Innocent the Pope Innocent the became pope in 1198. So Innocent III was the pope who approved the rule of St. Francis of Assisi. You might know the story about how St. Francis went to see the pope, and uh, the pope dismissed him, thought he was another religious fanatic. And then that night, Innocent III had a dream in which the the Basilica of St. John Lateran was collapsing, and one little man in rags was holding up the whole church. And Innocent said, oh, that's that's the guy I met today. That's that's that uh, the guy from Assisi. And so he the next day after having this dream, he gave his wholehearted approval to the Franciscan order. Uh, Innocent III is also the pope who approved the order of St. Dominic, the Dominicans, the order of preachers. So he's, he's a very famous pope. And I want to share with you a sermon, part of a sermon, that Innocent gave on the anniversary of his election to the papacy. So this would have been in the year 1199. 1199. And uh, this is what he says. Now, I'm, I'm not putting my own words here. These are his words. This is this is papal magisterium here, papal teaching. Quote The sacrament between the Roman pontiff and the Roman Church perseveres so firm and unshakable that they cannot be separated from one another ever
2: except by. Death. So, like like Pope Benedict, we have
1: Pope Innocent saying that the relationship between the Roman Pontiff and the Roman Church is a sacrament.
2: They cannot be separated from one another except by death. But the difference is, the difference is this: Benedict thought
1: that that did not stop him from giving up the active day-to-day ministry, right? Didn't stop him from resigning as bishop of Rome. Now, I can't speak for Innocent the but <laughs> maybe I can because I'm a, I'm a medievalist that I, I have a PhD. I can tell you, it would never have entered the mind of Innocent III that it's possible to resign being the bishop of Rome if it's a sacrament. If you're a husband and you're betrothed to your wife, you can't just leave her.
2: In fact, let me me read you the whole quote here. Let me start from the beginning.
1: Innocent III says the sacrament between the Roman pontiff and the Roman church perseveres so firm and unshakable that they cannot be separated from one another ever, except by death. The apostle says that after her husband dies, a wife is, quote, released from the rule of her husband, unquote. And then he says, a husband joined to his wife does not seek a release. He does not leave her and he cannot be dismissed for, quote, it is according to his Lord that he either stands or falls. And it is the Lord who judges.
2: Well, it couldn't be clearer. Innocent teaches that the papacy is a sacrament,
1: a spiritual marriage, until death do us part. A husband, a pope, is not allowed to resign. He's not allowed to seek a release. He does not, quote unquote, leave her, his bride, the church. Only God
2: can judge him and get rid of him. Now, how important was this teaching to innocent?
1: Well, behind the altar in St. Peter's Basilica,
2: he had a mosaic made portraying himself as the bridegroom of the Roman church.
1: Now, uh, In the forefront of the picture is Christ, the Lamb of God, uh, the bridegroom of the book of Revelation, of the apocalypse. So on one side of Christ is Innocent the third. He's barefoot and he's wearing a crown. And he stands facing his bride, the
2: church, who is portrayed as a beautiful woman. So this, represent, this artistic representation in St. Peter's Basilica, the, the old,
1: the old St. Peter's Basilica before they renovated it in the Renaissance, illustrates the message of Innocent's sermon. And I'll, I'll quote from, uh, from a historian who says, Innocent and the popes who followed him were to be joined to the church by marriage bonds that
2: were indissoluble. Well, now we have to ask ourselves, if Innocent taught that a pope cannot resign,
1: cannot leave his bride, then how come 100
2: years later, Pope Celestine V did precisely that. Again, he was in his eighties. He was he was not a
1: bureaucrat. He was not a leader. He was just a monk. And he it was too much for him. And certain lawyers, certain cardinals came to him and suggested to him that he could resign. And they claimed that there were cases of resignation in church history. And one of the people who came to him and said, you, could, you can resign, is the man who wanted to become Pope
2: and did become the next Pope, who took the name Pope Boniface Eighth. Now, we don't have time tonight to talk about Boniface Eighth, but he was,
1: even though he, well, He became pope, and Celestine V was happy to give up the office. Celestine V wanted to go to a monastery and and, and live a quiet life. And instead, uh, uh, Boniface put his uh, former uh, master, he put him in a
2: cell. He locked him in a prison. Uh, where the, the, the ceiling was so small,
1: he had to walk around hunchback. In fact, he, he, he escaped. He, tra- he escaped and he wanted to get away, but there was a storm on the sea. And so Celestine had to come back to Italy and he was captured by the, the, the soldiers of Pope Boniface VIII. If you ever read, uh, you ever read the Divine Comedy by Dante Alighieri, Inferno, Purgatorio, Paradiso, um, Boniface VIII is, is spoken about in hell. Uh, they're, they're waiting for him. When, when Dante comes and sees a, one of the popes who went to hell, uh, that pope mistakenly thinks that Dante is Pope Boniface VIII. He's like, what, what took you so long? Anyway, so... Um, The poet, the Italian poet Dante, did not have a very high opinion of Boniface VIII, and uh, neither did the king of France, although he had his own issues. So Boniface VIII, in the year 1297, added something to canon law, added a little teeny tiny paragraph that says, popes may may resign voluntarily. Um, did anybody ever do that again between Boniface, between Celestine V and Benedict only one person. And that was Pope Gregory the 12th who lived in the 1400s. Now in the 1400s, it was, a, it was a crisis in the church and three different men claimed to be the, the Pope at the same time. If you think it's a little crazy now, It was crazy then. Uh, St. Catherine of Siena supported one pope. Um, St. Vincent Ferrer supported another pope, so to speak. And then there was a third pope who actually was a former pirate. Anyway, a council was held at the Swiss city of Constance in the year 1417. 1415, 1419, between that time period. Long story short, tremendous pressure was put on all three. Obviously, there was only one pope and two antipopes, but pressure was enormous pressures were put on all three popes to resign so that the council could elect a new pope that everybody could agree on. And uh, the Council of Constance, they, they captured the pirate pope, and they threw him in prison. And as for the real pope, and again, we don't have time right now to explain why he was the real pope, but the real pope was Gregory XII, and he gave in to the pressure, and he resigned. But this is the interesting thing. Although he resigned in 1415, God did not allow... A new pope to be elected until November of um, 1417. Um, two years later, and ironically, that new pope was elected only one month after Gregory the died. So Gregory the Twelfth dies in October. Ni- uh, October 14, 17, the next month, Pope Martin is elected. And that puts an end to the great Western schism that had gone on for decades, where nobody was sure exactly who who the true Pope was. So again, that resignation on the part of Gregory XII, it was not voluntary. And uh, it seems like heaven waited Until he died before a new pope should be elected, which makes me wonder, maybe Innocent was right and Celestine and Boniface were wrong. Maybe a pope is not allowed to resign. Maybe the Roman pontiff and the Roman church are married to each other
2: and they're not allowed to be separated. Only death can separate if that's the case, well then Benedict is still pope
1: because death has not yet separated him from the papacy. Well, anyway, folks, um, it we I we can open things up to questions if that seems good to you.
0: Yeah, let's uh, let's get let's get some. Qu- you got some questions coming in on the Yeah, you can go ahead and read them. Got some questions for you, Dr. Mazza.
1: Sounds good. Let's take a look here. Uh, Dr. Mazza, the question I encounter when I mention the subject to fellow Catholics is why knowing who the Pope is important to my faith? What would you suggest I respond to them in
2: the simplest terms? Thank you. So I would say that, (laughs) let
1: me give an historical example. I, I brought this up on my show with Timothy Gordon about a month ago. In the city of Constantinople, there was a a bishop, a patriarch, and he was named Nestorius. And uh, he gave a Christmas sermon, I guess it was the year 429, something like that, in which he had the audacity to claim that Mary was not the mother of God. Uh, and in fact, he said that she was more like uh, his valet, his valet, that she provided the human clothing, but she wasn't actually his mother. And a lay person stood up in, in the cathedral and said, That's heresy. And that man, his name was Eusebius, it was a common name back then and Eusebius didn't stop there he he got a petition together and he put signs in the church and in the city and he, he and he got petitions he wanted people to swear the same oath as he had to expose this bishop as a fraud as a false shepherd as a wolf in shepherd's clothing a hireling you know our lord says in scripture my sheep know me, the the, the Pope is the vicar of Christ. It means that Christ is the head of the church and the Pope is the visible head of the church. Because Jesus is invisible at the moment. Uh, The Pope is the head. And in a certain sense, each bishop is is a Christ figure, is a pastor, is supposed to be a good shepherd. Well, if someone is acting like a wolf, they need to be called out. They need to be exposed because souls are going to go to hell. The, the hireling doesn't care about the sheep. So that would be my uh, long-winded uh, answer to that. Um, now, let's see what else we got here. Uh, I agree. I agree that there are irregularities in Benedict's putative resignation and that Benedict is better for the church. However, what would be the implications for the indefectibility and visibility of the church if Benedict passes away, leaving Francis in place for some time? Um, Again, all I can try to do is is give some examples from history.
2: in the early 1100s, there
1: was a disputed election between Innocent II and um, Anacletus II. And Anacletus was recognized by most of the bishops
2: as the Pope, and he reigned in Rome for eight years. And yet, um, after he died
1: his rival innocent the second became pope officially and declared that um, anacletus had
2: been a had been an antipope so um things can go on for years
1: uh, that are not that don't look very kosher that's what i would say all right uh guess that would explain why he's the oldest living pope in history. Yeah, uh, uh, if Benedict is still pope, then he actually is the oldest living pope uh, in the history of the church. Uh, Another question. If Celestine was wrong about the ability to resign, wouldn't that make Boniface VIII an antipope? If Boniface The eighth, then wouldn't his addition of the ability of a pope to resign to canon law be uh, nullified? Yeah, it seems to me that Boniface the eighth would have been an anti pope as long as Celestine was alive. But because of uh, partly due to the mistreatment that Celestine received from Boniface, um, he died a couple years later. So he was dead by 1296. So from If that's the case, then at least from 1296 until, I think, his death in 1303 or 1304, uh, Boniface would have been the l- l- legitimate pope after the death of uh, Celestine. Uh, question. So if Innocent III taught magisterially that the pope is married to his office, a bond that can only be broken by death, and then a century later, Boniface VIII teaches the opposite and changes canon law because otherwise Boniface himself would have been an anti pope. Where does this leave us? Wouldn't innocence teaching be infallible as defined at Vatican I? Excellent question. Yeah, this does put us in a little quandary here. Uh, like I say, I, I happened upon this sermon from Innocent, and some people might want to minimize it, but it's actually the same sermon in which Innocent teaches that a pope can be judged for heresy. And that quote, that a pope can be judged for heresy, that's been cycled and recycled in books and articles and all over the internet uh, for years now. So um, if we're going to throw out what Innocent taught about resigning, well, then you better throw out what he taught about uh, the ability of a heretical pope to be judged. Um, So, yeah, so I that's the question. The question is, if if one pope teaches something and a later pope teaches 180 degrees different, which pope are we supposed to believe? It would seem as traditional Catholics that we go with what the tradition was, and it seems like the tradition was nobody ever voluntarily retired. It, it took 1,300 years until Celestine got this bright idea in his head that, that may have been put there by Boniface VIII, who himself uh, tried, to, you know, tried to justify What happened? Um, So I would like to get to the bottom of that myself. Maybe there's somebody out there that can enlighten us, you know, cardinal, some good cardinal, some good church scholar. I would like to know what they think on the subject. All right, another question. If substantial error is a condition for resigning the papacy, wouldn't it also follow that it is a condition for accepting the papacy? If so, and Benedict XVI was in substantial error even before accepting the papacy, wouldn't that mean his acceptance was invalid and ergo he was an anti-pope Again, another great question. This comes up a lot, and there's a simple answer to it. What makes Benedict's alleged substantial error, what makes that invalidating is that he thought... He could resign Bishop of Rome, but somehow still be Pope. And he thought that was an okay thing, and, he, and therefore he chose to do it. But if it's not an okay thing, if that's an error, well, then he committed substantial error, and therefore he's, he's still the Pope. But when he accepted the papacy in April of tw- uh, 2005, he didn't make a qualified acceptance of the papacy the way he made a qualified resignation of it. If you read his declaratio, he made certain qualifications. I'm giving up the active ministry, meaning I'm not giving up the passive ministry. I'm giving up the ministry of Bishop of Rome. That means I'm not giving up the munis of St. Peter. So he, he qualified and said, I'm only resigning under these conditions. But when he accepted the papacy, he didn't lay down any conditions. He just accepted whatever the papacy is, I accept it. So there's nothing that would block him from receiving the papacy.
2: Because he didn't put any impediments, he didn't put any obstacles in the way, you see?
0: So Dr. Mazza, so if, if wine, and I is very important in this whole thing because he's kinda like uh, the complimentary part to Benedict. I mean he's kind of the guy that comes comes and seals the deal to right. me. So my question is, did and I know this is just speculation, wine would have had to been with Benedict on the same page if this was Benedict's intention all along. Because there was talk about him when he became pope, I think that he was already talking about, the, uh, uh, like you said, he went to visit Celestina Cel- V's grave. So, right. there were, I talked to Dr. Mike Foley one time and he said, yeah, he was already co- contemplating retiring at some point or resigning at some point. I don't know if that's true, but it seems that if he went to his grave. Why would you pick that pope's grave to go out of all the ones you could go see, you know, you picked the one that, that resigned. So, my question is... Was there collusion here with Gonswine and Benedict, you think, in your mind that, okay, here's the plan. You know, we're going to run a sweep to the left here, and I want you to cut back. I mean, these guys are on the same page here. It's not like I think one guy's following the other. I think these two guys, there's a collaboration here where Benedict did this and said this, and then Gonswine comes in and says, kind of confirms it, but then nobody says anything about it except people like you and a few others. That's kind of troubling to me. It's almost like, you know, he's in on it. I mean, I'm not, I don't know what his frame of mind is. What, you know he knows in Benedict's mind what he thought, what he's doing, what he's thinking. But for me, when I look at what's going on in church right now, and for Benedict not to come out and publicly, and he did with Seawald, because it's right there. You read it to us. It's right there in that book. Pick that book up and read it. But why he hasn't come out somewhere along the way and said, okay, look, I see what's going on in the church. Here's what I intended with my resignation. Someone tell me if this was right or not. He just stays quiet. And things are going for me. You know, there's Matt was on the other day about, you know, Francis is fixing to take, you know, uh, authorized contraception, which he can't, but he's going to give people the the low-informed Catholics. It's okay that they can contracept and still be Catholic. This is all coming. what point does Benedict say I've had enough? I mean, even if he's an heir, which you've proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, substantial error, no doubt about it in my mind. You got to love God. You got to love the church. Does he love the church? I mean, he's got to see what's going on unless he's in jail and he doesn't have any access to the world. I don't get it. I, I don't get I just don't understand how he can't come out and clarify to, to, to some people like you, a theologian, and say, look, do I have this resignation right? And if he doesn't, then maybe he can make it right. But he ain't even doing that. He's just doing nothing we could see as lay people maybe there's something going on behind the scenes. So this is what just drives me crazy. Uh, It's not the fact that all these errors are being made. It's the fact that, okay, I made an error. I see my error. Let me correct it or try to correct it because I see what's going on in the church and I love Jesus and I love the church. But to say nothing and to watch it happen for nine and a half years, where's he coming from? What's his angle? If you had to guess, what's driving this with him?
1: Well, that was the content of my previous talk for you guys that, um, unfortunately, even like two, two weeks, actually less than that, two days before he, uh, a week or just a few days before he, you know, left the scene, he was quoting Vatican to this and Vatican to that. He, He gave a speech and, um, He's full. He's, his mind is still full of all this nouvelle theologie, this, this new way of looking at the church. Again, it, it used to be very simple. We, the, before Vatican II, people were taught that the papacy is an office, not a sacrament. So if you resign from the office... That's it. You're not Pope in any way, shape, or form anymore. But after Vatican II, uh, there's this idea that Mm. it's not so cut and dry, that um, office and sacrament are never separate from each other. And again, I I, I don't want to rehash. Folks can go back and listen to my talk from last time. But uh, my short answer is, unfortunately, Benedict is still preoccupied with the theology of the council, and that's why he doesn't feel the need to speak up here, apparently.
0: You know, when your house is on fire, I mean, if your house ain't on fire, maybe you don't speak up, whatever, nobody, but when the house is on fire and people are dying, I think you throw all that, I mean, I would, I would just say, I, I gotta save souls, I gotta say, people are, you know, I, I don't know, I, I just have a different understanding, I mean, I get the, uh, not wanting to step on people's toes and, okay, well, I don't have that. But if you still think you're Pope in some capacity, I mean, to me, that's where he's really going to have to be accountable because if he still thinks he's Pope, he'd be better off saying I'm totally out in my opinion. Well,
1: if, if we take him at his word, he's a Pope without,
0: without a diocese, uh,
1: without authority. Exactly. A Pope without a diocese. He, He doesn't have, he doesn't have a say anymore, so to speak. I mean, I, I think he tried in a roundabout way. Uh, he did that book with yeah, so Cardinal well. Sarah, you know. Uh, but and again, he's 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 going to be 95. Yeah. Uh, or he just turned 95, and you know we're, we're lucky to still have him with us. I, his, his yeah. obviously he's physically diminished, and uh, you know it, Boniface the Eighth mistreated Celestine. We have no idea what's going on. True. With uh, with with Benedict. So uh, really, I think we have to pray to God and ask for divine intervention here because we we have to throw ourselves on God's mercy.
0: Yeah, you're right about that. You here's got some questions. questions. Go ahead, James. Uh, they, have, they have questions. OK, Dr. Mazza, here's some more questions for you on the monitor. Let's
1: see here. Um, there were news stories strongly suggesting that Bergoglio only talked to the Jesuit superior only after his election. A Jesuit is not free to accept a superior office with permission. If Bergoglio is not given permission, how can he accept? Um, yeah, I've I've come across this argument before, and the short answer is uh, I read I think it's Saint Alphonsus Liguri who says, uh, and I'm paraphrasing. Whatever discrepancies happened in a in an, an election if eventually somebody is recognized as the pope, that actually trumps uh, whatever uh, unlawful activity went on during that con- that conclave or that election.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, that doesn't quite sit right with me, but uh, St. Alfonso Liguori is not the only person I've heard that from, and he's a doctor of the church. So that's why I myself did not. Um, that's not my area of research. Uh, Julia Maloney has written a good, a great book on that subject, about the Sankala Mafia.
0: I read it. Yeah. But
1: uh, ultimately, it 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 may not lead to anywhere, based on uh, traditional understandings of uh, of these things.
0: There's one more. got another one there for you, Dr. Mazza.
1: Methinks this is step one of the papal council. I'm not quite sure uh, where they're going with that. Don't know if I understand that.
0: Maybe she can re-clarify that. Uh, I was going to ask you, you know, you mentioned about these rumors about this possible weekend. I know they're just rumors. This cardinal intervention thing, you know, you mentioned it, and I know it may not happen, but what would that look like in your opinion? I mean, nine and a half years, nobody says anything. I mean, I would give glory to almighty, I always do, but I would give praise to God if somebody just stepped up and said something, even if he got slapped down, right? Just yeah. for somebody to fight back and say, it would give, I think, all of us so much hope that there's just one person or two to, that that you know uh, will confront this whole situation. Um, but in your opinion... What would that look like? How would that? Let's say that did happen. And let's say there were two or three, you know, Burke, maybe, uh, you know, and a couple others that decide, okay, you know, we're going to do some, say something. Does that end up like the dubia? Would they just kind of, you think they just kind of say whatever, or do they maybe I- issue some type of formal declaration? That he indeed has separated himself from the church and then that would be a, what, a formal schism possibly, which. I mean, which would not be a bad thing, I think, to at least throw down the gauntlet and say, "Okay, we have now a line in the sand here, where people have to choose now." Like when that Vincent Ferrar and 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 Saint Catherine, Siena, they had to choose who they Ferrar was on the had the wrong guy, right? He was still a right, saint, right. though.
1: Yeah, Siena at, at the end, right. he uh at the end he realized and he switched his uh, allegiance Absolutely, to the true had the
0: ability to do that, yep. and that's what a saint does, like Peter, yeah. right? I mean, so, Peter was yeah, so. What, yeah, I mean, what do you think about that? What, what what does that look like in your opinion? Uh that type I, of thing?
1: I think you you I think you pretty much described it. That's I think how how you put it um is is how it would go down and then it would be you know declared some kind of schism. But um as uh Father Dave Nix just published today, I think it was or yesterday, uh he was saying, Look, uh you can call it schism whatever you want, but one thing is the anti church, and and you know one thing is I'm paraphrasing him. Yeah. You know, and one thing is the true church. You want to do do name calling, do name calling, but if if they're going to come out and say the contraception is okay, <laughs> if they're going to follow you know the James Martin approach to things, then uh, that's anti church, man. That's <laughs> that's not that's not the true church.
0: No, it's not. Uh,
2: that person
0: added a little bit to their question. Okay. Is it on the monitor? Yeah. Let's see here.
1: Yep. Oh, democratization of the papacy. Well, I, I fear the worst with this uh, synod on synodality that's going to go down this October.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's, ironically, it's the 60th anniversary of the opening of the Second Vatican Council. It is, 62. And I, as a historian, I'd like to remind folks that um, God nearly put his foot down. At that time um because that was also the cuban missile crisis
0: sure was
1: it was you know 10 12 days or 10 days in october that determined you know whether or not this planet was still going to be revolving
2: yeah, uh, I I
1: and um we're in a situation now with the united states and russia over uh, kiev and ukraine where uh, again this this could turn this could turn ugly. This could turn into a third world war. So, you know, yeah. the, Our Lady and uh, all the good victim souls that were alive uh, at that time, we're, we're, holding, we're holding back God's justice. Um, I, I hope that that's the case this fall, this October, but uh, that we, we could have an October surprise sure, and it. it might not be a, a happy one.
0: Yeah, Father Kramer wrote in his last uh, newsletter exactly what you're talking about. He, he's already basically said that this is the beginning of World War III. That that, that Ukraine-Russia thing is the is the start. And
1: uh, Father Malachi Martin said that this is in the third secret. Yeah. He said that uh, uh, yeah, you know, it wouldn't have been my choice to choose Kiev or uh, Russia uh, to be uh, important, but Our Lady uh, – is thought otherwise. Yes. So yeah, he he um, there there we're. Uh, again, uh, you know, I I could be wrong here. I don't claim infallibility with any of this stuff, but uh, I'm just call I'm just like like a baseball umpire. I'm just calling balls and strikes like I see it here. Yeah,
0: yeah. There's no doubt about it. You got another question there, James? No, there's a comment. Uh, if you could read that, I guess. Let's
1: see here. Uh, Shia LaBeouf has become Catholic while portraying Padre Pio in an upcoming film. Prayer of thanks for this high-profile witness. Yes, let's pray for Shia LaBeouf that uh, uh, in Thanksgiving that and, and pray that he becomes a traditional Catholic. And uh, if that's if that's an example, then uh, we might actually have uh, Russell Crowe becoming a traditional Catholic
2: mm.
1: because I heard that uh, Russell Crowe. Is uh, going to play Father Gabriel Amorth, wow. the famous uh, exorcist of Rome.
0: That's going to be a good one,
1: and in uh, a movie. So let's let's hope that that has a profound ex- uh, impact on uh, uh, Maximus there, the gladiator.
0: Absolutely, no, oh, that would be. gladiator. Huh? yeah. I was uh, I was engaged in a conversation this this afternoon with a friend about you know, this upcoming Synod on Synodality and the the talk of uh, the contraception issue and and all the different things. And I guess people need to hear uh, from you or, you know, from others, leaders in the church, people that know the church, you know, that, uh, and what you touched on earlier about those, the modernism basically is where people think the truth can change over time. And we know as Catholics that the perennial teachings of the church are dogmatic because Christ has proclaimed them through the Holy Ghost, through the councils, and what's defined as truth can't be changed. It can be extrapolated upon, but Francis has the ability to take that in order to change the doctrine. Right? I listen to you. Listen to the guy, and he's like, "Dogma can change. We we can expound on things, but what he really means is we're we're going to change doctrine." He's not doing it formally because we're protected by the Holy Spirit. He will never be able to do. But people who don't know their faith, I had a friend uh, come over this weekend. Um, Young man, and and uh, he uh, was, was, was went to the SSPX church, and a uh, very good person, and everything like that. And you know, we just got to talking about some things that Francis has done in nine and a half years, and he didn't know any of it. Wow! He didn't know any of it. And this is this is a person that goes to mass every week, and you know, because and I thought about it this week. I was, I was in my prayers. I said, okay, where would he hear this unless he was tuned into a podcast or he was listening to somebody like Taylor Marshall or or or, uh, patrick coffin or somebody but if you're not even listening to that then what do you read where you and you're not going to hear from the pulpit on sunday no so i thought about i said you know what where's he supposed to get this information well i guess from people like me and others in the group and other people listening here i mean that's our job to go out there but it really kind of struck me is people are getting blindsided because they don't even know what's going on and then they're confronted with the fact all at one time. And it's more than they can handle. They just like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're trying to tell me that the Pope said this. Yeah, he said this back in 2014. And so this person I had an email with, I listed about 20 things and she goes, why well, didn't know about half this? Wow. So you have empathy for people that don't know because maybe they just have no, but then there's, you know, they may know what time the Cowboys play on Sunday and what their record is, but they don't know what's going on in the church or so i think it's imperative that we as you know everybody on this podcast that's listening to you getting information i think we have to be charged to go out and not be idiots about it but to engage people especially catholics that we sit next to in the pew and maybe just strike up the conversation and try to get them informed because i think a lot of what's going on now there's not enough pressure on the bishops or the priests to really do anything. So they're just like, well, nobody knows what's going on. Why do I need to start a fight? But if, if everybody in the congregation was asking about, hey, what a, what's going on with this consistory this weekend? What this McElroy guy? I heard this story about the devil in Rome or whatever. And I,
2: yep.
0: Is this true? It's true. How's this guy getting a red hat?
1: Mind-boggling. I mean, it's mind-boggling.
0: And this is the diabolical disorientation that sister Lucy was talking about all those years that I knew had no idea what she was talking about. And now I see it because it's like only through diabolical disorientation could this stuff be happening. Yeah. You sat here tonight and read these words again of God's wine and seawall in the an interview and innocent the third and the place is on fire and nobody's fighting back and you found it and you shared it with us. Well, How come people, other clergy don't know it? If they do know it, why aren't they saying something about it? Uh, There's a question. Got one, James? Okay. Dr. Monson, go ahead. There's a question there for you. Yeah, let's take a look. Uh, Do you think
1: Canon 185 is being misinterpreted? It clearly seems to put forth emeritus as simply a title and not an office in and of itself. Um, The… Congregation for Bishops uh came out with a document i think it was two thousand eight about Bishop emeritus and what uh what does that entail what's that all about so if folks go to the uh Vatican website they can get more information on that um it's it's not traditional it's uh something that's post conciliar and uh like most things that are post conciliar, it's it's questionable.
0: I uh, also want to promote your classes fall the papacy because um, just listening to you talk about the, the those years, the medieval years of the papacy. I, I I've studied the papacy some I had no idea the things you just said in about 15 minutes there are so intriguing. And if we had this knowledge, which we have this available in the fall, if we, if you go and sign up for his class, I recommend everybody take it. I'm going to take it. Thank you. If I want to know more about this. I mean, I think knowledge is where we can, if, if you don't know, how can you defend what you don't know? And if we know history and we've been here before, then I think a lot of people would feel more confident that we'll get through this because there's been, maybe we haven't had a person attacking doctrine like this guy, uh, right. Jorge Bergoglio, but the Holy Spirit's with us, and, and the church will not be overrun. We're going to go through some rough times. Yep. And uh, it's a way of God, you know, we have to be purified. But uh, what, you, what you said about those popes, I mean, um, um, the, uh, the anti-popes, I mean, I think every Catholic needs to have a basic understanding of the, pap- the history of the papacy because if you don't understand it, then how can you possibly teach others about it and make sense of what's going on? You see things in the light of your lifetime and not two thousand. Like mean, tonight, you said, yeah. I didn't really know two popes out of 265 have done this, and one is in our lifetime. And That's it. that corresponds to the bishop dressed in white in the third secret of Fatima.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: you think there's something going on there? <laughs> our Lady comes in 1917, the, the 70,000 people witness a miracle of the sun predicted 6 months in advance the only miracle and people want to say it's private revelation yet 70,000 people were called in advance it's like well, getting a ticket for the cowboy game this weekend and showing up you know for the game Star. I mean you know, you know if they're selling rosaries or whatever and they show up and they see this miracle pre and and you're telling me that's pu- that's private revelation that's not private revelation man that's public revelation Yeah, that's that's, what Father
1: Gruner, uh, Father Gruner would would talk about that a lot. He would say it's public prophetic revelation when between 70,000 and 100,000 people witness something like that. It's unprecedented.
0: Pre-announced. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like, it just happened. People are to be there. They were told in six months. Our lady said, I'm going to work a miracle. People came from all over. They were there and it happened on time and it was so it, it's the most incredible miracle next to jesus's resurrection i think in the history of mankind where i mean i don't have, i mean i don't know how else you describe it and yet yeah. less than what two percent of catholics know about fatima and it's mm-hmm. been approved by the church and this all ties into this papal situation in my opinion with the bishop yes. dressing white i mean mm-hmm.
1: come on. third secret
0: absolutely and it's just it's just nice to have you here explaining this to it through the lens of Fatima, because I always believe that if you're if you're not understanding Fatima in relation to what's mm-hmm. happening right now in the church, you're not getting the whole picture. That's you right. trying to make sense of this without Fatima, and it's not gonna make sense. But once you put Fatima into the mix, then you then you start seeing, okay, we were warned about this, we were told about this, this didn't just happen. We were given a remedy for this. The first five Saturdays, brown sapphire, rosary. And what have we done collectively? Nothing. Yeah. There's a comment about that. Go ahead. Comment there. Let's see here.
1: Maybe we are supposed to be burning. God's love is being manifested by chastisement. We are a soft church. Well, our lady of Akita predicted what fire is gonna fall from the sky. So again, we have to do prayer, penance, and atonement um otherwise uh this stuff's coming
0: i would uh yeah our lady said in akita uh dr Mazza, that the the uh the uh, uh living would envy the dead think about that for a second mm-hmm. when you're envying somebody that's dead and that's a, that's her exact words you're no you're in a world of hurt
1: yeah
0: physically speak i mean when you wish you were dead and this was approved by the church in 19 uh 73 by Bishop Edo. He approved. Yep, yep. Uh, and, and Ratzinger, who knows about Akita and Fatima, said they're basically the same That's message. It. Okay, but in the third secret of Fatima, we don't get any of the fire falling from the sky, or we don't get any. You know, we get this. So we didn't get it all. We, and we, which we, don't, we we went over that last time. But yeah, I think that the first five Saturdays, if I could really just say one thing that we can all do. We can't do much except pray, but it's one Saturday a month, uh, Holy Communion in a state of grace, the rosary, the 15-day meditation, and the uh, uh, confession within eight days before or after. Jesus told Lucy, I think, that you could even go later as long as you're in a state of grace at the time you received your communion. It's very simple, but you know, when you try to do it five months in a row, there's a sacrifice involved there. You might want to go deer hunting on Saturday morning, and the only time you can go to Mass is 11 o'clock. You get to sit it out or miss it. It's true. I've been in that situation. You got college football. You don't want to watch college football. You got to go to There's a sacrifice involved there, which is what it's all about, offering reparation to Our Lady. So people ask me, you know, what can I do? Do the first five Saturdays. Study it. Go to the Fatima Center. You know, read about Father Gruner, what he said about the, there's a great, uh, I just got this yesterday in the mail from the Fatima Center, the Magnificent Promise, the Forgotten Fatima Devotion. All right. yes. Yeah, yeah, right there. Fatima.org. I think you can get that little booklet, and that's a great... They got a little checklist that you can do for the first five Saturdays, but God is pure simplicity. Our Lady's pure simplicity. People say, well, it can't be that simple. Well, Father Gruner always said, yeah, if enough people do the first five Saturdays, we're going to get the release of the third secret of consecration. We're going to get that, but if you ask the next 20 Catholics you run into, hey, did you do the first five Saturday devotion last weekend? They're all probably going to say no. They might even say, what is that? And then you go ask your priest and he's going, what is that? Can you roll me in the brown scapular? What's that? So the way, I think the way we get through that is we just start asking, We get, we get knowledge and we start asking the questions of people and I think people will want to learn. And I think that's, it's really no more difficult than that. I don't think it is. I don't think we're out to save the world. We just got to go to our neighbor, the person we sit next in the pew after mass, just walk up to them and say, hey, can I give this little booklet to you on the brown scapular? Rita right here, man, she's a warrior. She goes out there and, and, and just passes that stuff out and talks to people about it. Don't tell me how many people found out about the brown scapular through her.
1: A lot of uh, priests that I have actually encountered and I mentioned to them about the rosary, and they said, no, that's a personal devotion. Personal
0: what? devotion.
1: A personal devotion?
0: Did they read The Atlantic last week or something?
1: No, Father, <laughs> this is universal. This is
0: the church. <laughs> you know, it is not It's not personal. How can you have your, your community, your parish, if you do? it's only personal?
1: That's it. He said, no, it's personal. No, no, it's not personal. It's not personal.
0: The is not personal. Well, it, it, you got a couple more questions there, Dr. Mazza? Let's take a look.
1: Uh, can we do first Saturdays in a parish location where they are not explicitly recognized during the Mass? Yeah, um, you have to go to a confession on the first Saturday you have to receive Holy Communion with the intention of making reparation to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So that would be, that'd be during, during Mass. And then you have to uh, pray the Rosary. And you have to, uh, in addition to that, to meditate on the uh, mysteries of the Rosary for at least 15 minutes. Uh, Am I leaving anything out there, George?
0: Exactly right. Uh, The confession can be made eight days before or after, depending on, you know, because sometimes, you know, if it's on a Saturday, you can't get to. So Jesus, in a a locution to Sister Lucy later, said that it could actually be longer than eight days if you're in a state of grace. But Father Gruner always felt eight days was what Sister Lucy was told by Jesus at first. And then, you know, Jesus is not a scorekeeper. What you just said is the most important thing that I didn't know for a while when I began making them. Was that Mm -hmm. I I was just doing it and then checking it off the list, but I wasn't making an intention. So when Mm -hmm. I go to mass, before I go to mass, when I walk in, when I say my prayers before mass, I get there early. And I offer the communion at that moment so I don't forget during mass to do it. And I'll just say, I offer this communion in reparation for all the blasphemies committed against the Immaculate Heart of Mary. When I go to uh, confession, before I enter the confessional, I kneel down. I say that mentally before I bless me, Father, for I've sinned. And -hmm. I do the same thing on the rosary. And the 15 minute meditations and the meditations can just be as simple as you know the joyful mystery and i think about you know mary being in her home possibly laying in bed and then all of a sudden the gabriel appears to her and announces to her she's going to be the mother of the savior and she's like how can this be and i just kind of think about the gospel in my mind you know that story and then i'll go to the visitation and think about mary going to see elizabeth and how elizabeth has john the baptist in her six months, and how Mary is totally given herself to Elizabeth. Here she is pregnant with the Savior but she's going to see Elizabeth and and she says how you know wow how is it that the mother my Lord would come to me and then I go to the uh, the, the, the Nativity, the third mystery, the glo- and I think about Jesus and and uh, our Mary and Joseph on the donkey going to try to find a place to give birth to the Savior and they can't even find a place that The Savior in Mary's womb, who created the universe, can't even find a place to be born. But everybody else has got something going. There's parties going, there's, you know, festivals. But the creator of the universe, the creator of every soul that ever was, he can't even find a place to be born. He has to go to a cave. And he's born in obscurity. And I meditate on that. Then I go to the fourth, which is the presentation. I think about Simeon and Anna at the temple, how Simeon was told he would not die before he saw the Savior, and how he told Our Lady, you know, that uh, uh, a sword will pierce your heart, you know, that this child has been born for the salvation of of many, and how uh, Mary, in in the Seven Sorrows of Mary, she talks about at that moment she was just devastated. She she didn't realize the suffering that was going to come with that, but she never shied away from it. And then the finding of Jesus in the temple, the, uh, the fifth one and i think about jesus you know being in the temple teaching and 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 then mary and joseph 3 days down the road and they've lost the savior they've lost jesus and they're like can you Im- i've lost my kids for a while at places i couldn't find them i freaked i freaked out when they were little can you imagine losing the savior of the world for 3 days what mary must have suffered and i meditate on it. and by the time you're done really that's 15 minutes right there and then you might want to meditate on the the sorrowful and the glorious. But our lady said if you do those five things, or those those things, communion, worthily, uh, the meditation, the rosary, and confession with eight days, she'll be with you at the moment of your death for all the graces necessary for salvation. And if you read if you wear the brown scapular, Ooh. you'll never suffer eternal fire. That's our lady's promise. I don't know about you, man, but that's the best deal I know going. so these are the little things that we can do we don't have to go off to africa or go to ukraine or whatever to we can just do these little things right here because god will accept our little offering and uh it's simple but people sometimes they get overwhelmed by what can't be that easy a five-minute prayer that's going to end all this yep there's some more questions. go ahead
1: question uh what is to argue against a Maccabean-style operation against the Vatican, our church headquarters, is there a reason not to? At this point, what more reason do we need? Well, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas says that if you are going to do a military uh, take-back of your country or something like that, you, you have to have a reasonable chance of success or otherwise, you are prohibited from doing that. Uh, and our Lord says something similar when he said a king with so many, you know, 5,000 troops, he has to sit down and figure out, can he really defeat uh, another king who's got 25,000 troops, right? Uh, so I, I think that explains itself there. uh it, it, <laughs> No uh, Maccabean-style operation would succeed uh, against a a, a modern uh, state there. Um, Next question, Uh, to steel man the argument, what would have to happen or new evidence would have to emerge for you to seriously consider that Benedict's resignation might have been valid? And Francis could be Pope, aside from the second coming or other supernatural uh, intervention. Um, Yeah, um, well, you know, I'll just say one thing here. Uh, Supernatural intervention or miraculous signs. How about the lightning strike on the Dome of St. Peter's Mm. the day that Benedict uh, gave us his declaratio? Uh, That was pretty... That's pretty uh, scary stuff. But no, uh, I think that was a bad omen. But um, no, so uh, my answer would be uh, in order for Francis to be the valid pope, it seems that Ratzinger would have to be correct that you can give up being bishop of Rome and still be pope in some ontological sense. Uh, even though nobody, as far as I know, ever taught that up until Ratzinger in February 2013, <laughs> that that'd be my answer there.
0: All right, well, that's it. Are they good? Yep. Well, two hours just flew by like it was nothing. Wow. Seems like we just got here. <laughs> uh, we can't thank you enough for well, coming thank you, in and sharing your insightful knowledge and I got you got me excited about this weekend because I knew about the consistory, but I didn't realize about the cardinals possibly I mean there's a lot and I know it's a lot of rumors but something at some point has to happen uh I would think uh so we'll, we'll just pray that yeah pray you, extra Cardinals have courage and you know and I want to say also that with our priests and religious you know we need to encourage them I, I, I had a priest over the other night you know at our house and and I told him, I said, you know, Father, if you just want to come over and hang out, and we'll give you a key, and you just want to get away and put wow. your feet down, you know, th- these guys are human beings. And yeah. uh, to be a Catholic priest in 2022, wow, you could probably think of some other things career-wise that might be a little bit easier for you. I mean, some of these guys that went to the seminary, it wasn't it wasn't like this uh, till 2018. I mean, this stuff was going on, but we didn't know about it publicly. So it the priesthood has taken a, a big hit, and I think uh, what we're, we need to be Loving of our priests, and I'm not talking about accommodating sin or anything like that. If we know there's something's going on, we need to confront them in a charitable way, but be confront them and don't look them in the eye when you say it. But we also need to love them and say, "Look, Father, you know, you know, you're a human being. You know, he needs money every now. And then. Slip him a few bucks after Mass if he preaches a good homily. You're not paying him, it's not simony. Just say, Father, go get dinner on me or do something. You know, mm-hmm. and show them that they're loved. Because I think they they We ask a lot of these guys and we don't, but we, and we, we don't, don't understand that they're men like us. I mean, or, and and the sisters are, are women and they're human beings, man. And they get scared and they get frustrated and they just need to be encouraged. And I think encouragement may bring strength. So that's something I'm trying to really make an effort to go out of my way to really make sure that these priests know that they're loved. If I see one in public, buy him a cup of coffee. I don't know if he's a pedophile. I don't know if he's a, a bad priest or not, but that caller demands respect because that's the caller of Jesus Christ, of his yeah. priest. And uh, I think we have to really look at the priesthood now in, in a way, not not a condescending way, but to say, man, without a priest, we have no faith. We have no salvation. So I, w- I would just leave that with everybody to, to really go out of your way to encourage your priest, to tell your priest that you love them and care about them and, and make them feel appreciated because they're human beings too. So, all right. Well, let's say a quick Hail Mary for Dr. Moss and his wife, and uh, we appreciate you coming. We're going to have you back. So, thank you, George. Want you to be a regular. All right. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy, Holy Mary, Mary, Mother of, of God, God, pray for, pray us, for us sinners, sinners
1: now, and now and at the hour of our, our death. death.
0: Amen. 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 In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, Dr. Mazza, thank you so much. God bless you. God bless you guys. guys. And we'll be in touch. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Take care now. Take care.